Bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Hello and welcome to the Weird Things podcast. I'm Andrew Main, joined by Justin Robert Young. Well, hello, sirs. Brian Brushwood. That's a true fact. Forget all of you. You Brian Brushwood doesn't exist, truthers. I'm here. And the head of the Brian Brushwood doesn't exist, truthers, <laughs> Mr. Bryce Castillo. Hi, everybody. It is awfully <laughs> convenient that Bryce is uh-huh. the one, you know, behind all the dials and the knobs. That's and right. also, I'm the invisible hand. He, he's the one assuring everybody that Brian Brushwood is definitely a real person here. Pay no attention to the man behind the mixer. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with the conspiracy theory that birds aren't real? Sorry, birds? Full birds, stop? I've seen birds. Birds, it, birds it, aren't real. The birds are uh, either robotic or some like lab-grown government creation for surveillance. Uh, this is great because I can't decide if I like this better or worse than the idea that the 1960s rock group, the birds, were not real. But, uh, <laughs> well, but also, but, uh, but, like, a, a, one of the weird conspiracy theories that's solved by roadkill. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah. and, and I'm sure that's part of it because you notice that birds, when they die, they their bodies they go spark. away very, very quickly. Well, and, and uh. specifically because they have hollow bones, the the, the breeze blows them mm. into corners, Nanotubes. and also there, there's there's less mass to consume. So when ants get at it, mm. it's like 20 minutes later, they're gone. So I could kind of understand, like, if all these birds are real, where are all the dead bird bodies? It's me, oh. conspiracy theory, Jerry, uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry, geez, uh, who let conspiracy theory Jerry in? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I got a theory on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I wound up. Somebody turned me onto that because I own birds, and uh, they. Uh, uh, so I followed, and then they followed me back. The birds aren't real. Instagram. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and it's all memes, but I don't know whether like it's one of those things. And Andrew, I'm sure that you had a lot of this uh, specifically with like JREF stuff, where you see things where you almost have to assume that they're parody, right? But the second you poke your head in, you very often find out that they are not right. Like that, somebody believes this. Um, you know that was a funny thing about the flat Earth thing was a while ago. It, it used to be kind of there was some people generally believed it, but there was sort of a flat Earth society that was sort of a joke, and it was just this like, ha ha, isn't it funny if we have a thing called you know, hey, flat Earth. And then, you know, you had conspiracy theorists, and there always had been conspiracy theorists who detached themselves to it. And now, of course, there's a lot of, you know, people who are, you know, basically convinced of this and of all of the, all of the surrounding, you know, silliness that goes with it. So, yeah. You know. uh, anyway, so birds may or may not be real. And uh, you could you could look that look that conspiracy. Oh no, I think somebody turned me on to that when I was doing Conspiracy Week. That they, they were like, ask everybody their favorite. Like you don't believe it, but you love the fact that other people believe it in in whatever weird way that birds aren't real. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think we could come up with just about any kind of a conspiracy that we wanted to at this point. Yeah. All right, what's a what's a fringe conspiracy that you could you could be convinced of? 
Oh, man. Um, I, I think most of them are like Hollywood stuff, like uh, stuff that was released under some circumstances, but the secret behind the reason, scenes reasons for it. Like the more you hear about it, you're like, oh, that does that does track. I'm I'm probably like two documentaries away and one person that I really respect saying that like some level of like Rothschild family, like Bilderberg conference, uh, uh, higher level, like uh, uh, control of, of economies and governments uh, away. Yeah. I, I could see, yeah, some of the central banking sort of stuff or whatever. Like, I could certainly see that, like, you know, you you could you could sort of persuade me that, like, you know, forget, you know, forget the, the Bilderberg and the conference we're aware of. But like, oh, yeah, you know, there's another group. And if you look at like, you know, who they're these all finance ministers went to this, you know, school in Eaton or whatever, or they're all part of this, this, this one economics club sort of thing. And they do talk about this, but it shapes the change of things. Like I could believe there are nexuses for thoughts on where things come from politics and stuff. Not, it's like, you know, people sitting in basements stroking white cats and stuff. This is yeah. what it's going to be, but there are a little, you know, you have Davos and other stuff, but there are other things you, we don't, you know, more obscure sort of stuff where you get some of the people who are actually the policy makers for certain things go to and then say, yeah, no, this new fiscal theory makes more sense. So let's use this for establishing bank rates or stuff. Like I could be like convinced that like there's, you know, little pockets of, you know, these things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't think it's any kind of like command and control. Like, okay. Yeah. Uh, there's like charts and somebody, you know, Dr. Claw bangs his fist on the table and now all of a sudden these, you know, a country dissolves or something like that. But uh, I, I do think the idea that there is an upper current of influence is is on one level kind of undeniable. The question is exactly how impactful it is. I, I went into a Wikipedia hole about a Bohemian Grove, uh, oh, yeah. uh, which is, for those of you who are unaware, a gathering that I, I think still goes on uh, out here in California, but as specifically in the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s was a very influential place for out out in the redwoods of california where politicians like careers were made like that the richard nixon credits a, a bohemian grove meeting where he wound up giving a big speech as kind of the resuscitation of his career past 1960 and, and him running for president again because people the, the right people saw him as a leader i have friends that do that the whole bohemian grove thing it's like big it's like <laughs> Rich dude, summer camp. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's the uh, the interesting the interesting thing about it is that it, uh, it has, and even Richard Nixon on tape had some very pointed language about the kind of people that go to Bohemian Grove and the yeah. activities that they like to uh, engage in out there. But it's uh, uh, you know there's no doubt that there are people that are that are making uh, uh, the decisions, and certainly Bohemian Grove itself has spawned a lot of conspiracies but the question is exactly how much influence they have how much any one person or one organization can have over a chaotic world you know i remember i read a book early 90s or whatever and maybe brian we talked about this, the puzzle palace which was about the nsa and they talked about like it was a lot of like you know going into the nsa and i talked about things like that there was a facility in the United States that had uh, British agents, British British uh, intelligence agents operated it, 
and it was used to surveil American communications because it was a way to get around the legalities of Americans because we passed a law saying, you know, we, you know, our spy agencies can't spy on like domestically. So we had a listening post here that was run by British that we worked with. And then in England, we had a facility where we operated and it was an intelligence sharing thing, but it was a way, a technicality to get around it. I remember reading this, I go like, this sounds very plausible. This is very plausible. And Puzzle Palace went into the whole thing about like, when Western Union laid down the first telegraph lines, how the Navy we used ships to stop them and say we're going to splice in, you know, listening devices, things like this, and the history of this stuff, and it, just about everything I remember from it turned out to be true, and and that's one of the things that later on when we've heard about domestic spying and a lot of this other stuff, you're it's kind of like, yeah, this is this is not new, and and we've been bending the rules and doing this thing. Not that it should be not to judge it either way, but it's like that was the thing for me it was like. If you weren't a nut, but followed what was legitimately like credible. Well, and, and that's the problem, or I guess the wonderful thing about conspiracy theories is that conspiracies are real. They're they're real things. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I think one of my previous picks was Operation Mincemeat, which was a, uh, a collective, like it was, it was it was a collaboration of hundreds of individuals to secure a body to create a fake British officer who'd never existed and find a body that looked close enough to it and stuff his pockets with a bunch of fake intel and uh, and to conspire to have the body wash ashore on exactly the right uh, Spanish small town that was sympathetic to the Nazis, but 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 objectively said that they're on the Allies' side, and then to allow the Nazi coroner a few minutes alone with everything so that he could take some pictures of the documents that, that basically lied about where the Normandy invasion was going to happen. Like, real big conspiracies do happen. Uh, so as a result, like, maybe I'm not crazy to think that women's uh, pants always have small pockets to keep big handbag alive. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or most recently, I do find myself stumbling across the whole Elon Musk, everything is more likely to be a simulation than not. Because it's like the mere fact that, I, and I understand the bias, the mere fact that I'm alive and generally healthy and in a good place makes me think, oh, well, if this was a video game and I was an eternal being and I did just want to understand what it was like to be alive in the early 21st century, it does seem like this is the kind of life I would sign up for on my seventh or eighth lap. So maybe it is a big, uh, a big fat simulation. Let's touch. I want to touch on that in a second because your rationale for that's very different than my own. Um, by the way, Operation Mincemeat, that was the book in the movie The Man Who Never Was, but was based upon that story. So if you ever you ever see the movie, it's cool. It's about, you know, and, and that apparently did play a very big part in influencing, you know, where the Nazis decided to put their defenses. Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily I'm not into the whole simulation argument because I think that like, yay, me, I'm leveling up or whatever. I just. For me, it's like anytime I play a video game or I look at some of this current stuff in AI and all that, I'm like, yeah, this isn't real. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, if this is what we're doing now, I'm like, this isn't real. <laughs> just wait, wait, sorry, sorry. What, what do you mean? You mean your reality isn't real, or or well, the chances I, of being just, a simulation? Every time I see, for me, one of the big things was playing around with some computer, you know, a neural network, you know, on my own little system here where it started generating spontaneously generating images that looked like close enough from, you know, arm's length distance looked like real things, right? And then looking at some of the procedurally generated stuff where you see uh, entire cities generated 
through uh, computer-generated stuff, not because it's programmed how to do build buildings and stuff, but just because of it learns basically how to just spontaneously generate stuff. Or looking now, like you've seen, like the 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 new generations of the simulations where you put other people's faces or completely generate humans using you know these neural networks and stuff. I'm like, man, like it would be so. I could imagine just several steps from where we are now, how easy it would be to convince just a bunch of neurons or convince itself that its reality is real. And I'm like, then okay, I, I guess probably is a simulation. Oh, so you're you're firmly on the side that 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 we're all simulated beings. Um, I to me to to me it's like you know the, the the going back to the whole you know idea of applying sort of the you know the Drake equation kind of logic that like if if it's possible to create a billion simulations that are just as real as our world around us and the inhabitants have no idea if they're in a real one or not, what are your chances that you're in the real world one in a billion? Yeah, uh, uh, by that same logic though, um, I, I I remember. Um, being a fan of the Drake equation until I read one of uh, Michael Crichton's essays where he points out that that pretty much the entire Drake equation is nothing but prejudices. It is your inherent starting bias of your opinion about how likely oh, life is oh, to evolve I, I, and all yeah, that I'm not stuff. defending the Drake equation, just the basic idea of saying if, if, we, if we accepted – and I, I totally agree. I always had – there are too many. So I just meant the idea. If we say, and, and, and by the way, uh, we obviously all know the Drake equation. Right, right. So, so yeah, just just it for for anybody who doesn't. <laughs> uh, so the the Drake equation is is ostensibly a way to calculate what are the odds uh, of of how much alien life there is out there, and it reads as you know uh, n equals r subprime something times f subprime yeah, sub p. We'll have- and sub C, blah, 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 blah. Number Basically, of stars in a galaxy times the number of planets times the number of planets that can support life towards uh, sub- developing intelligent life. Like a lot of like very, very long odds multiplied sure. against each okay. other. Okay. All right. I got you. God's but, but, but then, uh, I, and, and I think you're right, uh, Andrew, in that, in that we're looking at if we're going to calculate the odds of this being a simulation, it, it is very much a Drake equation-like situation, but ultimately – the only way for us to fill in those gaps is with our prejudices again. And I remember yeah. the, the the phrase that landed with me was when uh, Michael Crichton said, uh, "An equation that can me that can be anything uh, it means nothing." And uh, sure, and, yeah, and I, the, I feel like we're in the, the same Drake conundrum. Equation, yeah, it breaks down like we haven't. We we can estimate planets. We can estimate maybe what we think are habitable planets, perhaps. But when you start getting into, and then the ones that develop cellular, you know, cellular life, well, we only have one example of that, and then multicellular, again, only one example of that, and that's where it just sort of, the, it could be off by a factor of a billion. <laughs> so that's that's the breakdown of the Drake equation. For me, I just meant the whole idea of like, hey, if you have a billion universes and nine, you know, only one's real, the others are all spawned, these virtual ones where everybody inside of it thinks they're real. What if it's simplified like that? If you simplify it like that, and it can be simplified like that, and as far as I know, it could be, I'd be like, I, I guess it's a simulation. I, I Along that same odds, though, like if we were thinking about if it's a simulation or not, like it seems to me like if we were doing a simulation, we'd have more interesting uh, – like 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 if – if I'm going to sign up to be in a simulation, it's going to be one – it's going to be like a Star Trek universe where there's tons well, of you, other aliens you, and all this stuff. You're you're coming from the point of view from your in your idea that you that that uh, one that I'm 
a person outside the simulation who signed up for this, and I'm not just you know non-player character. I mean, my, in my <laughs> idea is like I'm an NPC. I'm just you know, and it, it might even be. I don't even assume it's necessarily a game. It could be just somebody's just trying to calculate the thermodynamics of you know gas exchange on some planet around Sirius. You know, like, and we're just a byproduct. I mean, like literally, I'm living my entire life to have, at some point answer uh, somebody important. I hear the king has a new advisor, and that's it. <laughs> that's the entire point of my life. Oh, Every- oh, yeah. oh to be a non-player character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, my whole purpose is like, ah, would you like to see some ledger domain, sir? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I was I was saying like, what what would be the uh, in in you know imagining and, and and applying you know grossly applying anthropomorphizing whoever will create the simulation like yeah what's the value of a bunch of these simulations you know like yeah if they're super advanced and stuff it's not like they're like wow that wagon wheel's amazing we're gonna use that in our in our flying cars but it might be like oh you know man their version of Infinity War is much better than ours let's watch that you know their version of this TV show is really damn good. I like that. I like this music. You see Eminem's album in Universe XCC three 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 one zero one. Fantastic. So, or it could be a means to like recreate history, right? Like sure. Uh, in the world where, uh, you know, maybe information is gone, and we see that in this simulation, where in, you know information sort of degrades over time. Uh, it would not be the craziest thing to say. Well, let's put all the raw ingredients back in, and. <laughs> get the vcr the, the vhs tape out <laughs> yeah i i don't know i but it is interesting we, and again we, every one of our points of view is as valid as the other as far as what it could be you know it's kind of what i like about the discussion You're like why i think it's because of this i don't know mm. i just don't believe anything especially birds well <laughs> even if you are just uh, binary patterns being spat out by an ultimately powerful computer you can still give your credits to us at patreon.com slash weird things again patreon.com slash weird things is where you can support the show thank you to everybody who has already done it of course the beginning of the month is always a time that we like to give thanks to those who have kicked in a little scratch to keep this show a rolling go ahead and check it out Patreon.com slash weird things. Mm-hmm. So on a related subject, we talked about before, and it was just mentioned in the chat room, uh, the idea of uh, GANs, generative adversarial networks. That's where you have like a random noise generator on one end, and then you have uh, something that's trying to recognize images on the other, and it scores. And it says, yeah, no, that's good. And so the noise generator starts to be less random and starts to generate things that satisfy that other processor, right? Well, some scientists, being the crazy people that they are, said instead of like having that be a computer processor recognizing images on the other end, what if we put some electrodes on a monkey brain and we show a bunch of images to a monkey and every time we get a much bigger feedback, like the recognition centers flare up, we tell that generator like, yeah, you're doing good. More of this, more of this. Well, they did it. And they created images that were basically the monkey's brain Working with the neural network started generating images that made the monkeys go, hmm, I like this. This is very cool. Please show me more. And So the idea is that by by reacting to the synapses in the monkey's brain, that these represent, 
ideal mental images for monkeys? Is that the it, idea it's here? Basically, the computer is trying. It starts trying to randomize and trying to create generate artificial images until it starts creating images that the monkey brain starts to recognize or starts to like. You know, the more neurons fire, going like, "Oh, I like this," or "I understand what this is." Mm -hmm. So these are completely computer generated images, just starting with random pixels until the feedback for the monkey's brain says, yeah, this looks like some this looks like something. So these are images the monkey's brain goes, yeah, I think that's something. I like it. Oh, just and, and, and from, from there, it would keep going more in that direction based on each time the monkey thought that he saw something that he liked. Yeah. Now, on the right, they show you these natural images or images they show the monkeys or the monkeys liked. And it's kind of sad because the upper row is just monkeys. And then the lower rows, you realize what their life is like because it's just it's humans with masks on. <laughs> <laughs> but then these images on the left are the ones that the machine learning generated. Yeah, it looks yeah. like you got something that vaguely resembles a rooster in the upper right hand corner. The other one looks like a kind of like a husky like dog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, it seems like it likes dogs. The bottom one here well, looks like the face masks that the scientists in the wear. Upper, the upper ones, like though, yes, but they could also, if you start to look, you start to see the dots and stuff, and sort of the similar patterns to the images on the right. Mm -hmm. You you see what kind of looks like, you know. Maybe because like like the, the the upper left one, the left half looks kind of like a monkey face. Yeah, yeah. Anything anything with uh, fur and a eyeball, uh, I feel yeah. like the monkey's gonna be like, oh, that's me, it me. <laughs> but look on the lower in the middle section, the one on the right, that looks like you realize that there. If the monkeys, all the humans, the monkeys see are people with blue blue hair caps, and blue yeah. smocks and white face masks. You realize that's probably what they're that's why it got triggered like oh it means banana time or something because of the coloring not necessarily yeah. the form or wow so how did it uh, did it just uh, i guess they had brain monitoring equipment and then they just showed all of these images and paid attention to which ones it it, it seemed <clears throat> to go ooh to they it's started with basically started with random pixels mm -hmm. and then every time they got a higher score they would say okay keep clustering these pixels here or use this color here and every time that score, there was a feedback loop. And it, it basically, over time, that image grew from the response from the monkey's brain until, you know, you basically started from just random noise and you end up with basically something that looks kind of like an image. Like an optometrist. Better one, better two. Yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. Wow. And that's the way, like, you know, if you've seen the GANs where they've used them to generate, like, human faces, it's the same thing. Is they, they basically, um, but on the one making the decisions is another piece of software that's, that's trained to recognize faces. Yeah. And here they're just saying, well, let's just look at a monkey's brain and see if the monkey, you know, seems to recognize it. Uh, I was showing this one on the, on the video earlier, but there's a new GANs out um, that generates, like, fashion models. Have you guys seen uh -huh. this? It generates a full body, so an, an outfit plus you know the human face and head and hair, and then so we're looking. Yeah, we're looking at basically it looks like people and clothing posing and all that, and they're completely generated. When we say generated, we don't mean it's like a three D model of a person that it's just adding clothes or faces to. It's doing the same thing before. It started with a bunch of random points until the generator says person not a person, person not a person. This one's generating people and clothing and full bodies. Totally won't be used for porn. Don't worry. It won't be used for porn at all. Oh, gosh. Wow. It's over for you, human uh, coat hangers. Uh, <laughs> yep. They're going They're going full uh, AI there. Uh, that's amazing. That's insane. Especially this part in the video where, like, they are able to sync up the poses. So it can, I mean, it seems like it's 
actually deterministic about it, about like generating not just a like not just the goal of generate a model, but also like generate a model in this pose. It seems really mm-hmm. capable of that. Wow. So I wonder what is the because uh, Bryce, you brought this uh, to our attention a few weeks ago, the uh, the the metal station that is just like playing uh, a computer AI generated metal from right. this one band uh, in a couple weeks on on our bank episode. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we uh, will be future. talking about it. Uh, <laughs> new conspiracy theory. Justin teleported from the future. <laughs> hey, Bryce, you know what you should do is show us some like stuff using a heavy metal band using <laughs> neural networks. Yeah, do don't do that. Please, in the next few weeks, figure that out. Sure. But uh, 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 and then also figure out that uh, at some point the band comes back and curates it. I wonder what the curation process for something like that is. Like, oh, do man. you just make? the like Sears catalog of the best versions of these things. And then even beyond that, could you just source all that stuff from China and just actually sell it on Instagram? Like, uh, uh, is this a fully, could you totally run the Sears operation off your phone? Like if you're just watching that and picking through uh, the best things that you like. Um, se- separate side jag in a similar vein uh, you know, all of this is being developed for um, virtualizing producers, right? So it's like you've got uh, low-fidelity AI uh, producers that's creating fairly raw content. But the consumers we tend to only think of as as human beings. Have we explored the idea of why we might have robotic consumers and what that might be like? Like, um, I, in, in what... For what outcome, I guess? Uh, uh, for for uh, to to give people work. Uh, like uh, imagine a future where uh, you know we're we're in a universal basic in- income kind of society, and people are noticing that it's like wow, a lot of people are producing stuff and nobody's buying it, and mm-hmm. they're not making money. But meanwhile, they're going through all the creative work to create stuff. Uh, maybe we could finance a set of. Uh, AI bots that will buy stuff and and they become educated, um, uh, uh, self uh, directed consumers. Like and and what happens once once AIs are their job is to consume stuff and and what does that look like? So I've thought about this, Brian. I think it's a very interesting thought. The question is one in the early stage of those, like as long as somebody owns the bots, then it's the same thing as Amazon buying your stuff up. But yeah, if we get to the point where we have they're they're intelligent and they have their own rights and their own abilities to own their own bank accounts and make their own choices and stuff, it's crazy. Like, yeah, you know, you, we could be we could have an economy where it's trillions of bots to, you know, a few billion people. When it it sounds we we talked about this on the show oh, I mean a few months at least back but uh, the Google sort of selfish ledger idea of like yeah, yeah. An, an AI tapping into all of the information in your day to day life and buying not just buying but designing and manufacturing uh, tailor made goods for you like if it knew you wanted a scale it would design the scale that you would want uh, and then buy it for you. Uh, I I could see a functional version of that of like bots proactively buying stuff. I don't know that bots having money and then just giving the money for some reason. Well, think but- about think about what we do on YouTube right now. Like uh, Google has gotten much much better about explaining what it is 
the they're getting closer to revealing uh, how the YouTube algorithm works to to boost stuff up. And it gives you, it says, look, I don't know what your widgets are that you make on YouTube, but in general, your last 10 episodes, they tend to perform this well. And based on that, if it's doing better than that, then we'll push it out to more people and see what happens. But it occurs to me that there's enough distance between us and the art we create and the consumers who are actually watching it that if you told me, yeah, uh, fully 50% of those are bots whose job is to watch content and they... We've artificially trained the bots to become extremely good critics of what is good and bad entertainment, and we realize that it enhances the overall ecosystem to have bots watching your stuff. So all I know is that we get a certain paycheck based on a certain number of people watching it, and I can conceive of some esoteric reason that uh, Google would would you know unleash a hundred thousand view bots to go out and watch content and decide what's good and bad and provide the social proof of just being there. And then it the conundrum it puts in my mind is, do I care if the check clears the same either way, whether it's robots watching my stuff and robots commenting and robots sending emails and eventually robots buying our merchandise? Do I care if it's a human or a robot on the other end? You you may not, but the advertisers were the ultimate source behind that check would, and I guess that's yeah. where it comes back to. Is, sure, and and let's say, and because this is like, a fantasy what is a, scenario, a merch let's transaction. Say, uh, let's say let's say they have realized that that having this bot based ecosystem adds, uh, let's say, you know, if it's a quadrillion dollars to the ecosystem, it it, it increases it by. 25%. So it's like, well, yes, we will spend $5 billion on these bots because they're adding uh, uh, $25 billion or $250 billion to the overall uh, uh, economy of, of this and, and uh, driving people to quality faster. Help me understand, like, okay, because how is your scenario different than just right now an algorithm already that sorts and says, well, we'll sort them because this out this gets higher views and that means because the, the the driver of YouTube is advertiser dollars right and so we have algorithms now that say put Brian here modern this algorithm says oh we love modern rogue put it higher because w more people it's a bot saying I'm voting this higher because the advertising dollars will mean more here so uh, uh, this is just off the top of my head so forgive me if it's not very good uh, proposal but imagine there's a competitor to YouTube and all of the best and brightest of YouTube, or, or in fact, let's let's put all this in the competitive com competing ecosystem. Let's say a competitor to YouTube comes up and says, "Okay, the flight to quality that we've seen in YouTube is directly attributable to the number of entities who are engaging in the curation process and upvoting, downvoting, and all that stuff." We have all so so we're launching a competitor to YouTube, but. Where we're going to win is that instead of taking the 13 years or 15 years that YouTube's taken to get to this point, we are going to fill it with so many bots that are going to be curating in and uh, competing. We're going to create that ecosystem so we're going to have a faster flight to, to quality than YouTube did. And it will be driven because uh, humanity itself only has so many people who care enough to post comments and suggestions and upvote and downvote and drive that flight to quality. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend an awful lot of money because we want to take on YouTube and we'll fuel it mainly by bots. So I think uh, stop me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting, but that the idea would be 
while YouTube has an algorithm that is based on critical mass of people watching, that the competitor would say, all right, we're just going to model statistically relevant, uh, 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 you know, the, the audience that YouTube has, and that that's how we are going to uh, build our community. Correct. So, so have- uh, let, let's say the theory was uh, YouTube has achieved this level of fidelity over 15 years by virtue of the fact that it has 1 billion human curation units that by virtue of their feedback, their 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 thumbs up, thumbs downs, have shaped the quality of content that's coming out. Uh, we perceive that if we can have 5 billion of those units doing the same thing, we will uh, eventually overtake the quality of YouTube because we'll getting we'll be getting faster feedback because we'll be manufacturing the 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 uh, the appreciation engine that uh, that that caused YouTube to be what it is. So if that's the case, uh, then all of a sudden you populate. You know, let's say let's say there's a hundred million real users, but then there's uh, three billion AI users, and let's say give or take for the purposes of exchanges on YouTube you essentially, they all pass the the Turing test. They all, you know, they, they all jump in and say first, but they say so at exactly a believable amount of time and stuff. So, and, and so their theory is, and again, maybe this is an incorrect theory. You could say it's a bad business model, but I can at least picture it happening. And I could picture myself being in the position of how much do I care whether the views come from real human beings or bots if in every way they deliver the same thing, including revenue checks based on number of views, uh, meaningful feedback in the comments. Uh, 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 you know, and again, I'm starting with that point, and then expanding it to you know they eventually start writing fan letters, and they eventually start spending money on the merch store. All of which, for in this imaginary ceremony, uh, uh, situation, uh, uh, for the purposes of of beating YouTube in a race to uh, high fidelity content. So. I, I I certainly think that like those are very interesting ways to try to improve quality recommendations stuff like that. I guess I keep I guess the thing I'm my my brain is having trouble to sort of detach from is just I see YouTube as it's a platform to deliver advertisement. It's it's advertisers pay money because we want people to buy our products, and that's that's the that's the source of the ecosystem is the advertiser money. And so as an advertiser, I go okay. How do I benefit from this system? Now you could say, okay, well, it's going to be better programming. So when your ads do run, I'm like, okay, but that's the end of the day is like, are the ad, if it's whatever algorithm, whether system you want to use to figure out how we show this great, but your revenue is dependent upon how much stuff you sell. Uh, I, I think you're getting lost in the weeds on this because um, I'm not saying that it's a good idea. I'm more interested in as a creator should I care whether it's humans or robots that are consuming my content as long as the check clears and I get the feedback I want? Uh, there's no shortage of, of definitely tangible examples of people who did bad ideas. Vessel was a bad idea. Vessel was, what if we could cause YouTube to be one week behind us by spending a ton of money? It was a bad idea from the beginning, and that's why it's failed. So imagine Vessel 2.0 is we're going to populate all of the, the this with with robots giving meaningful feedback. So so again, rather than getting lost in the weeds of whether or not somebody would make this company, because we've already seen bad companies get made with bad uh, ideas. I'm more interested in as a creator, how much does it matter to you 
where uh, who ultimately sees the stuff and whether they're silicon or, or organic. Well, can you expand on uh, your feelings on that idea? Because I think we spent a lot of time setting up the why, but if you want to talk about the receiving end of that, are you are, are you inherently into that idea? Or? I mean, I, I I don't know. That, that that's why I'm asking you guys what you what you would think of I, that kind of situation. I, I think that I think yeah. If you if you whatever the business models, we don't have to worry about it. But you as a creator, I think that anytime you get positive reinforcement, somebody says we like what you did, or the machine likes what you did, or you scored high. We like that. How much you know? And, and we get a lot of fake versions of that. We get amplified versions of that on social media. You know, it, it's it doesn't mean anything to you until you get it, and then you go, "Oh, cool! Or you you got a gold ring, you got this." And I think video games are a great example of the arbitrary awards or awards tangibly related to effort, showing us that we like it. So, yeah, I I, I could, and again, I wasn't trying to like ah, so I'm just saying I was trying to the, on the forgetting the economic side of that as a creator or somebody involved in the ecosystem. We sure, yes, a thousand percent. Yeah, I mean, if the if the supposition is that those views are counted as legitimate and counted in the same revenue way, then I guess it doesn't really change anything. I don't know. I mean, I say like I as an author, I'm you know I have to deal with algorithms all the time. When I see the algorithms have selected me and, and the, the the index is great, and I get a higher profile for my books and stuff. Like I've had like the, I've had like the number one book in science fiction for months because of you know, cross selections and stuff and the algorithm liking me. And, and it's an artificial, it's a purely artificial thing, but to me it's cool. Well, I, I guess because it, it controls the exposure, right? And, yep. and for, for, for Brian, he's like, well, look, if, if long as the money comes in and I'm getting the responses that I want, it's making my content better that I, like, you're not depriving yourself or being led astray by bad or loaded feedback. Then, what's the diff? I mean, I guess yeah. I guess if if like that that would be the thing I would worry about whether it's a bot or an algorithm saying your video or your content is similar to this other stuff that works well. I would worry about the homogenizing. Even if even if these are the perfect algorithms or or bots, I would worry about the homogenization of content. Of oh, this looks like the other thing that looks really good, so let's do that when a lot of the best stuff that we find is new and different from what is already popular. Well, but, bots could look for that. Uh, so yeah. so imagine this. Uh, to keep it in the literary world, imagine Borders wants to stage a comeback, and they've got a trillion dollars of dark money, and they, and they want to exact a 10-year campaign. Then I can picture, in a fantasy scenario, them uh, activating malicious consumer bots whose job is to do nothing but corrupt your talent and divert it into a place that would not appeal to real humans, but instead only appeals to bots. So like, for example, your next book is a bestseller and uh, it's about something that you like, but everybody is obsessed where it's like, man, that robot clown was the best thing in the entire thing. Man, if all, that robot clown should have his own spinoff series and you're just getting tons of feedback from that. And so it's like, so next year you decide, well, I'll try a one-off of the robot clown saga. And, uh, and sure enough, it becomes an instant bestseller. It's one of the biggest things you've ever done. And then three years later, you're like, everyone's like, oh, you know what? Uh, uh, the, 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 the sexual tension between robot clown and satellite man uh, is just great. That should be a thing. And then you find yourself going farther and farther away like um 
uh, I, I feel like in a word, like we just talked about the ridiculous all, all nature of roads lead to robo hentai, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden you find yourself 10 years in and you're the robo hentai guy. And it was all. And then meanwhile, uh, uh, let's say separately, they're, they're curating their own, you know, this is like, like a bizarre, like, uh, AI version of old boy. <laughs> Eventually you just find yourself being pushed into this disgusting scenario. <laughs> Well, but I mean, I, I guess that that's my question is, and along the way, all the checks are clearing, all the feedback seems genuine. It's just all bot driven. And then uh, I, I guess the one worry at that point is that somebody could switch off the bots and then all of a sudden you're just the robo hentai guy <laughs> and you have nothing to show for it. Who's benefiting from that extra influx of the, uh, cash? Borders, baby. Borders. Yeah, Borders. we spent a trillion dollars in dark yeah. money to make Andrew the robo hentai guy. Exactly. Like, like in this case, that. it and, wouldn't and take to that be much honest, at all. We've that, seen examples, granular examples of this. Like you take, you take back in the day AdWords and AdSense, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, if I write about – methylesioma or if i write about you know these these diseases associated with really huge litigation and stuff um i'm gonna do a blog about like you know you know doing you know in suing your insurance company when your loved one dies because we know those payouts are a hundred thousand dollars and the the, the click-throughs that you look you used to be able to search through click-throughs to see like what were the highest paid click-throughs and there were like some that were like thirty dollars and forty dollars or whatever and so people started creating sites for this then other people were like well, hell, I can just take scrape the web for articles that relate to this and create entire sites. Their whole purpose was just to serve up these articles with this. And then you find out that there were other third parties that were making money through click-throughs that were creating bots that were clicking on those ads. And it was, you know, that was like Google had to fight was, you know, bots creating content, bots clicking on content because of just you know, an artificial network of content, you know. And and I'll tell you what, now that I'm thinking about it, we might have close to a, a real example, because uh, 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 again, this is a new idea I'm having, but like in the war between Vive uh, and Oculus, Oculus has written hundreds of millions of dollars of checks only to keep people with their content exclusive to Oculus. And that's generated some bad publicity for Oculus. In, in a world where they've spent you know let's let's call it billions of dollars just to try to keep the vibe from overcoming them i could totally see them taking that same billions of dollars and creating robo consumers that just make sure that all the most popular vive content is always garbage to humans so generating uh, junk content no, no 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 buying junk content and encouraging people to increasingly make their stuff garbage where it's like uh, imagine ai bots that are saying like well i mean i like this whole star wars thing but lose the license am i right gross and then and then meanwhile this exact knockoff of the same thing only with like uh let's say donkey penises all over the place uh is like consistently outselling the 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 star wars license and then what does that tell the creators is like well i guess i'm gonna put more donkey penises in my in my vr like i i you know it seems like that would be just as effective as paying for exclusivity yeah i think you could if you you put a dollar amount to say how much if we can spend this little amount and create and influence it because we know they're going to be planning what games do for the next year and really you know and i think that that kind of thing sort of probably precedence there are precedents for that you know another tactic that's interesting is you heard what people will do on amazon to their competitors which is you hire a review farm to give your review your competitor five-star reviews 
a ton of five star reviews. Oh, tons of five star reviews. Fake ah. reviews. And then they get flagged by Amazon because who who else would pay for all these five star reviews except for you? Mm-hmm. Your your band. It's like no, I I, I did it, but. <laughs> You know, we talked about this on on Night Attack before because we get a lot of spam (laughs) emails to our account and we don't have a spam filter. Um, (laughs) And uh, it uh, it was like an an anti SEO tactic like that. Like, hey, pay us money and we will target your competitor with all these like it's it's weaponized what used to be an easy tool to to gain the system now as a destructive force uh, against your your opponents. And that and that's the thing is in in some of those heavily commoditized markets, uh, getting targeted like that and being taken down for a day, like those are real. That's real money. That's yeah, catastrophic. If, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's why you know Amazon actually just put in this system, where for copyright, because this is another thing, is that people will just like uh, put up your product. They'll find a version of your product in China and just list it exactly the same that you theoretically would have a copyright challenge on. Amazon now has a program where you can basically like put up a couple hundred dollars in like, I bet you I'm right money. Uh, then the people that you are uh, uh, challenging have the option that they can match that. I bet you I'm right money. Uh, and if they don't, then their product immediately gets taken down. Uh, and if they both do match, then it goes to an arbitrator that determines who is actually right. But it's it's Amazon's weird way of trying to say like, all right, well, if there are these abuses, let's figure out a way that through the market, uh, uh, it would be unlikely that somebody who's just a ripoff artist wouldn't just run away from trying to challenge it. Uh, they would rather just say, all right, well, took my shot. Now I can not do that because so many of these places don't even hold their own product. So... I, it's interesting. I wish wish YouTube did that with takedown notices. Mm-hmm. I because like uh, remember that period of time, like I was getting like dozens of these things that were BS, you know. Yeah. ones. Oh God, yeah. You know, we were talking about this on DTNS uh, last week. That you know, just talking. The EFF wrote a great article about how broken content moderation is in general. But YouTube is is obviously a very pernicious one, and we just had another round of people being, uh, you know, uh, taken off of various platforms. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, very, very important conversations that I think are, are happening around this right now. But part of what the YouTube thing is, is like, number one, what their recommendation was, is like, you need to be very clear about what you're taking off. And, and if you're going into emergency mode, like uh, what they did with the, the New Zealand shooter, then you need to be clear about what you are taking down. These are the things that are getting taken down immediately, and we are doing this now, uh, and, and we'll see whether or not there's a point where we will not do this. Uh, but if you are going to upload commentary, then here's what we recommend you do as terms of uh, best practices. But furthermore, I kind of wish that we had a point where at least number one, you know, we, we have like our friend Mikey Newman who does the movies with Mikey, and he'll constantly within the first 72 hours face – uh, copyright claims because uh, the the movies that he's talking about, the studios will just have these auto flags that oftentimes don't uh, wind up holding up. The studios usually understand that this is a benefit to them to uh, to have people talking about their movies in glowing terms. But, uh, you know, just to have some kind of window of like, hey, look, if you're a creator, you, 
72 hours from when you upload, just keep an eye on your email or keep an eye on your, uh, uh, you know, YouTube messages. And uh, uh, th that is the period in which we will be very quickly kind of coming back to you based on our bots that are scanning all this kind of stuff, that a copyright challenge is going to come in. And past that, you're going to have at least a, a fair amount of time to challenge anything. But like if for it to get pulled down immediately, just keep an eye on there. And at least that puts the balance of responsibility on the creator to be like, okay, well, let me, at least I know I, that I need to do this uh, for a period of time instead of just constantly being on edge that anything can get ripped down immediately and now you're losing those views and specifically at the beginning that you're, you're going to lose that momentum that all of a sudden there's going to be some element of it that you got to that it you do have to go to the mattresses on and it's going to have to get taken down and now all the momentum that you built up in that first that crucial first 48 hours is going to be lost and that's like death in the youtube world i remember a few years back maybe maybe longer that because this was a big deal for for gaming on youtube yeah gaming is one of the largest you know, subsections of YouTube, uh, where YouTube was was actually being proactive about this and saying, "Hey, we're actually going to start a fund because uh, uh, game developers should not be able to use the DMCA system to uh, take down criticism of 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 these games." Right? You had uh, 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 games journalists and, and people like Jim Sterling who would get taken down because some some you know small indie developer uh, did not like that uh, there was a bad review out there or a very critical review and was was abusing the DMCA system and at one point Google Google or YouTube said we are actually going to put a fund together to protect these creators and it's crazy that that I guess didn't I, I haven't heard much about that since but I I would like to think that given how popular entertainment is and how like especially in the case of Mikey who like is very clearly doing criticism and, and fair use usage um, that that type of creator can't have some sort of have more basic protections. I think just rules like literally just having rules of the road that everybody understands that aren't going to be changed overnight. The, the, the problem I, I, is, I would say like in YouTube's case is YouTube is always going to side with Paramount because Paramount spends millions of dollars on and that's why there are tools available to people like them that are not really yes. available to the rest of us mm -hmm. and that was part of the problem is i had i i've had i remember like people were putting my magic videos in their entirety up and i kept repeatedly have to say no this is mine and how many i don't the amount of hours amount of times i spent wasted that because well i'm a little guy and i don't get to use their copyright system to do this but i think that getting the FF or somebody and having them funded or willing to say, let's, let's start suing over false or, you know, of these DMCA notices. Let's make a pen. There's no penalty really to this no. for doing these, you know, and if you don't like it, you can do it and you can harass. And if, as long as there's no penalty for doing it, why would you stop doing it? Asking YouTube or Facebook to enforce that when the biggest provider of these DMCA notices, yeah, you yeah. know, is their advertisers. And there are supposed to be parts of the DMCA for, handle you're supposed to be able to take action against people who misuse it and yeah. we don't see we don't really see that in any substantial way you yeah. have to be able to afford to take action mm -hmm. 
there's a there's some other weird uh, and I guess I guess headline uh, uh, shocking uh, YouTube's takedown system not perfect, uh, but but there are some weird pockets that happen that that cripple like there is no way to handle it. For example, uh, when you do a performance on Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Uh, to their credit, because they're awesome, they make sure to put a provision in the contract that explicitly gives you the right to put up uh, uh, enough of your performance on your channel uh, to use as a personal demo reel. Um, I guess some company out there has figured out that everybody is going on Penn and Teller Fool Us, and then they're putting their performance on their channel, and then these guys run around and, and claim all of them. Now, they are not the CW. They are not the production company that owns it. They are a third party, but there is no way to correct it within the YouTube ecosystem because the only way to push back is to say, no, this is 100% my content that I own. And, of course, that's not the case. It is right. it is not your content, but but you do have explicit permission in the contract to feature it on, uh, you know, for, for your self-promotion uh, rights. And that puts you in the position of saying, I have the right to show their content, but it's not even that. It's saying... They don't own that content. Exactly. Look, so meanwhile, they're, they're, this third they're party, uploading it on their own site and they are are saying like they're trying to kill the competition by saying, nope, that's our content. I don't even right. know that they're uploading it on their site. I, I think that they are just flat out running around saying if it's a Penn and Teller show, they're saying we own it. And because it happens quietly, they start running ads on all that. Like to, right now, if you type in Brian Brush with Penn and Teller Foolish, you're going to see an ad. And, and I will not get any of the money from the ad. The CW will not get any money from that ad. It will be whoever this third-party squatter is that has figured out that because the CW does not go around yanking everybody's Penn & Teller Fool Us performances yeah. off right. because it's in the contract that, that, that you're allowed to show it. But meanwhile, these other guys have figured out that the only way to stop them from running ads on there is to claim that you own it, which would, of course, would be disingenuous and, and fraudulent. Right. And And... I know I may I, I think these policies have changed in the past few years, but it used to be if someone was claiming your content and making money off of it, even if that claim was incorrect, that money would not come back to you in the end. Correct. Um, I think that might have changed, but that's uh, it's a Byzantine system, right? It's three different Google systems all converging into one train wreck of of lack of accountability and, and it's tough because i find myself uh, kind of caught in the middle because on the one hand i'm super frustrated with where we are but also man i remember the landscape uh, uh 11 years ago uh it is it is a miracle that we are where we are now in terms of of having taken leaps and bounds closer to fairness in mm -hmm. this whole thing yeah. you know you you might be within your legal rights though to say that you are the owner of it because the the performance itself you are the owner of you own the panamine you have the copyright on that because of the copyright production for panamine works so it'd be an interesting because you say yeah i own this i own this you know and and you could say well who owns the footage it's like well we're not debating who owns the technical footage but the performance itself belongs to you because you do you created it so mm. um that's interesting. Possibly. But the 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 tough thing about DMCA is like, you know, YouTube's system is is mushy, right? You have to stay file a claim and then YouTube takes yep. action and then you file a counterclaim, but it's not a real DMCA counterclaim because a real DMCA counterclaim takes place in court. So you do a yep. like a phony, no, I'm actually good, and then they decide whether that's right or wrong. And then yep. at that point it becomes the real DMCA process where you gotta get a lawyer, you are actually going to court, there are very real uh, uh, legal, you know, legal costs and legal uh, uh, 
repercussions. You know, robo lawyers. Yep. Who's gonna be the first? Who's gonna be the first uh, 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 place to set up a, a, a cyber court where bot lawyers do bot things? That that's already a thing, isn't it? To like fight your aren't there bots that'll fight your tickets for you? You you just go to a website and and I mean fill yeah, in the stuff? I mean, they'll, they'll they'll file the stuff that is that is there. But yeah, yo, I I would love to see that for uh, uh for yeah, some of this yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, to level out the playing field. Right. You know, here's the issue. Uh, and actually, actually, my number one topic we'll put it to another week was actually justice reform was going to get into some aspects of that. But uh, in many, I don't know if we really want, I think if you're if you're innocent, you probably want a robot arbiter. If you're not, you really don't <laughs> want one. You know, that's might be part of an issue. But anyhow, you guys want to do picks? Yes, indeed. Yes. Hey, look, uh, uh, I'm here to be a trailblazer <laughs> in a few weeks. I'll bet you everyone's going to catch up and tell you about this amazing new sketch comedy show yes! legs called, uh, I think you should leave. Uh, I will say I have three episodes left to go, but the first episode is 15 minutes. It's called, has this ever happened to you? It might be one of the funniest 15 minutes I have seen in sketch comedy uh, in in years. Uh, uh, the the rest of the show is very funny. It's got its it's got its uh, uh, high points and and it's more middling points. But uh, man, that first episode! Oh my god, that first episode! <laughs> it, it 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 does, in my opinion, lose a little bit of steam on that last sketch. But the first five minutes of this mm -hmm. thing is the most powerful opening five minutes of any comedy thing I've seen since the first like, five minutes yeah. of Tenacious D and the Pick of Days Destiny, uh, which, by the way, also slows down considerably. But but the first five minutes was amazing. <laughs> gasping, gasping for breath. Uh, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, just the first, like, the, yeah, it goes to that last sketch, and that last sketch is a little bit of a longer thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but everything up to there, have you the, the baby? Oh, content, dude, <laughs> baby of the year is something that I can't like. It's just so insanely bizarre. I just love every escalation and complication of it. Have Have you gotten to the um, the Friday night song yet? I keep yes, so, that was the last. That was the last. <laughs> the last I keep, episode I saw that keeps coming back in my Friday night. <laughs> I'm thinking. Oh my God! <laughs> That's the one at the funeral. The funeral, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so good. It's just it's. If I were to to trace it, it is uh of uh, you know very much in the bizarre sense of of uh, some of the Tim and Eric stuff, but it it also has a very weird like mix of uh mature observational comedy with this like very very repetitive and juvenile at times streaks <laughs> like it's it's so it's it's pretty good uh if, if you like sketch comedy it's certainly it is a must watch if you like sketch comedy if you don't like sketch comedy just there's 15 minutes for you that'll that'll hopefully make you laugh if you like a show like this hmm. yeah i uh uh your friend of mine uh, rex williams of the whiskey tribe uh he's the one that that one of the people who insisted i give it a try and then uh, said, if I didn't like it, uh, he could eat the receipt. Uh, the, the, he, uh, uh, I, I was surprised to find out that as much as he loved it, he said he had done like three full laps of it and didn't realize it was directed by the same 
people who did the uh, big sexy Valentine's Day special, sure, the Michael Akiva. Bolton thing, and uh, uh, so I found myself like having to force feed him a couple of sketches on there for him to see, like, oh, there's more of this. Well, well, also uh, uh, those uh, 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 the, the the main dude. Uh, and his uh, and and the guy who hosts Baby of the Year uh, have a show called uh, Detroiters that went two seasons on Comedy Central that I'd always heard people rave about, but I never gave a shot because I think it, it it sort of fell into the glut of like Always Sunny in Philadelphia and workaholics, and I think it wound up coming off as a uh, a, as a an also sub. Ran. Uh, I, I, it's a must watch now. After uh, I think you should leave. Mm-mm. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And uh, I see you in the chat is asking if it's on par with the Michael Bolton special. Better. I can't believe I'm saying that. Like, like uh, Michael Bolton special was amazing. There's there's a few mm-hmm. minutes of it being a little bit slow. There's no minutes of anything being slow in it's this show. First episode. Like, look, uh, the the rest of it. If if you like the first episode, you're going to enjoy it. Uh, but I I think that that first episode is just, oh man, so fun. <laughs> I was so are we. I was I recommended this on Court Killers a few weeks back, and uh, when we do the lineup for the show, I like to find a clip to have while it's playing. And they put up the full clip of the horse ranch. Uh, oh yeah, sketch, <laughs> which was my first time seeing that sketch. So I was in this room just shouting. Oh my god, <laughs> the things that happened in that sketch happened. It's it's so good. It's really really good. <sighs> Uh, hey, I got a, I got a retro pick. Yeah. Uh, I introduced, uh, I knew this moment would have to come sooner or later. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know how I was going to set it up, but I explained to my kids, I was like, uh, Hey, I think it's time for you to watch this movie. And they're like, uh, okay, well, what's it about? And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to tell you. All I'm going to tell you is that it's very, very weird. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, well, it's, it's kind of part satire against a, uh, uh, commercialism. It's 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 uh, transgressive. It has haunting, strange images. Um, and we sat down, and to my kids' credits, they sat down and watched all of Time Bandits with me, and it mm. was freaking amazing. It uh, if if you ain't seen Time Bandits, uh, it 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 does. It's very much of its time. It's like what 1980 or 1982. 81? So it's it's going to be a little slow by by modern standards but my goodness the imagery they put together uh is extraordinary so so good david warner as evil is uh as iconic a performance as i could ever hope to see um and uh what's funny is penny you know she's 15 and halfway through the movie she goes this almost feels like a monty python thing and I was like, funny you should mention that, kiddo. Oh, it is? <laughs> well, it, John Cleese is in it. It's directed by Terry Gilliam. It's oh. not not entirely 100% pure uh, uh, Monty Python, but it, you could tell that DNA is strong in there. Well, and- but that was that was always the, the fascinating part about Monty Python is that they had such strong directorial styles uh, and that the, the Gilliam stuff kind of very much felt like Gilliam and, and the Gilliam solo work feels like extended versions of the Python stuff that he directed. Yeah, it gives me hope that I can show her Brazil next. Maybe not the 11-year-old, but definitely the 15-year-old. Yeah, uh, Time Bandits is a much more fun watch than Brazil, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you, have you heard the good news, brother, about Time Bandits? Uh, uh, me? Oh, oh, oh! I, I, I saw some chatter that they're developing it into a TV show, which I have very conflicted feelings about. Well, two things. It'll be, it's supposed to be on Apple, too. Do you know who's writing and directing it? Mm, Terry Gilliam? 
Taika Waititi. Oh, I'm in. Oh. All in. Oh. All in. All in. Oh, and, and by the way, there's a, we're looking at a scene right now of the, the gang taking a photo, and Penny, man, my 15-year-old, the moment that happens, she goes, I bet that photo of them holding the map turns out to be important later in this movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the 80s was about, like, Chekhov's Polaroid. You know, like, uh, Back to the Future and whatnot, whenever you took the photo of something. It turned out to save the day later, yeah. Uh, I have a pick. I gotta pick. Go ahead. Uh, I watched this over the weekend. I I I did not even I did not know what I was walking into uh, watching this. Um, it was not until I was a good way into the into the movie that I realized what kind of was going on. Um, but uh, Netflix has a new biopic out now called "Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile," the Ted Bundy story um, as told by the perspective of his girlfriend at the time. And uh, it's 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 a, it's pretty good. It's I did not know the uh, the the sort of media uh, implications of the Ted Bundy trial at the time. This is the the late seventies, uh, one of the first, maybe the first court case uh, televised, if if if, uh, if that's right. And uh, I I I enjoyed it. I I thought it was an interesting way to sort of tell that story. I think as someone who. I, I doesn't know a whole lot about the Ted Bundy case. Uh, the movie definitely spends a lot of time giving you a lot of ambiguity whether or not this man did it. And uh, <laughs> I feel like that probably is is maybe, I don't know, uh, it probably should have been a little more overwhelming. Well, uh, I, in de- in de- I, I'm 30 minutes into it, yeah. and, and I find it a bit uneven, but there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of other Ted, but there's the Ted Bundy tapes and other stuff on Netflix and all that. I think the goal from here is her point of view. She doesn't know, you know, is that, mm-hmm. is that, is that, you know, that, that we're not getting, you know, you, we cut away to his point of view and stuff because she's not doing anything interesting right. um, in this way the movie's told. But it's the idea is from her point of view is what does she know? All she knows, these things are being said about her, you know, this, you know, the man she loves. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the point of view is that uncertainty until we all know everything. Yeah, I, I I guess that's a good point for that. But it also does make a weird device of of for a lot of that film, it's a lot of cutaways back to 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 his girlfriend Liz just sitting on the couch and not picking up the yep. phone. Um and so that that stuff does feel a little weird. But I, I think it was it was interesting. Zach Efron plays Ted Bundy. Uh and he does a a pretty good job of it. Haley Joel Osment's in it. He's a yeah. a, a secondary character. Uh, but yeah, pretty pretty interesting. It, it kind of does make me want to check out the Ted Bundy tapes. Uh, yeah, the, th- those are uneven, but yeah. it's they're still. And the thing that got to me, though, the thing that drove me nuts when I was watching this is they showed that the the home video stuff of them, you know, him with her and the kid, her kid, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who's holding the camera? And it's like we keep getting these like these home these home like home film, not home movies, not home video, home movies. Right. I'm like, there's and like sometimes somebody smile at the camera, and then you see a tease standing next. To him, I'm like, what? what? Where, who's this stranger taking these? Yeah, it's a small little detail, but it's sort of part of the problem. From everything for it is sort of like who's my whose point of view is this from? Mm-mm-mm. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I I uh, I, I had a, had a good time watching. This. I feel like I learned a little more about that case uh, yep. having watched it. So, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. 
Uh, my pick is, uh, I've picked this before, but I'm going to reinforce it because they usually they end up always surprising me with good stuff. And that is uh, Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y. And then the other one is Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A, which with many public library systems, these are services that you get for free that have movies and audiobooks and other stuff on there. And I'm surprised by the selection. Sometimes I'll go look on, let's say, Canopy, and I'll see, you know, movies that aren't available on Netflix that are, you know, available for pay other places that aren't on HBO and like new and recent movies. It's not a huge selection, but I've, I've number of times I found stuff there that came there is one of the early release windows and it's free. And what's interesting is if you, let's say, have an Apple TV, it will not search it. Like Apple TV will tell you what's on Netflix and HBO. It won't tell you what's in those services, hmm. but you can go in there and then sell. And I've, I've often, very often found things that like I was about to go buy on iTunes. Yeah. Nice. Double free. So again, it's a really good pick if you want to, you know, have more content. And are both of these ones that you use your uh, public library card for or just who? Yeah. Yeah. I, so like with uh, all Los Angeles public library card, I'm able to use both of them and access the content. Nice. Again, let me reinforce lynda.com L Y N D a many library systems have agreements with that a lot of great tutorials, a lot of great stuff. You know, I'm in the middle of a big coding project and you know, I, a lot of what I do, I learned from Linda, a lot of other stuff from Udemy, you know, paying 10 bucks for courses and stuff. And then the stuff, the whole back end infrastructure is built on top of like right now I'm using Google Cloud for free. It is amazing what you can do today for like no money. Wow. So, what a world. Too bad it's all fake. I just hope the robots like us and vote <laughs> us up. <laughs> We're going to find out uh, uh, whether or not uh, uh, the sun explodes in an orange hue or a greenish one. <laughs> it's literally it's there's the joke about like how did the titanic sink all of the time travelers who showed up to watch it sink <laughs> and it's like one day we're gonna see these people in futuristic jumpsuits you know stands just appearing out of nowhere staring up at the sky and we're like well, what's going on <laughs> the supernova is about to happen they're like shut, shut up do you realize how long this render took we finally get to see it <laughs> Stop ruining it, NPC. <laughs> it's been weird. The Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. 